So two weeks ago, we began a uh, three-part series, and uh, we took a break in between there as, bright, as T- uh, Tyson uh, preached for us. But we're going back to it, so I thought I'd give you a little bit of a, a refresher as to uh, what went on a few weeks ago. Uh, we began, of course, with this sensitive uh, subject on uh, divine healing. So how does divine healing take place? And uh, we took a look at the book of James, and James, in fact, in the New Testament, it's the only clear directive we have in praying for physical healing. If you want to know where to go in the New Testament, this is the place to go. And so we took a look a few weeks ago at the procedure for the sick person and for the elder. And we ended off uh, talking about the biblical reasons why someone may not get healed. So people we know always don't get healed. And so we explored the question as to why would that be the case? What are the reasons why people may not get healed? And we, if you remember, we walked through five of them. I'll just refresh your memory just for the sake of our sermon coming up here. So someone may not get healed, may not get healed because the elder lacks faith when they're praying for the person who's sick. It's, uh, we often hear about these stories where these faith healer, healers call people to come to this, uh, maybe some kind of a, uh, a gathering where there's supposed to be a, a healing type service. And then the notion is that as he's praying for them, they don't get healed. And often he'll say something like, you lack faith or uh, you need to pray more or something like this. But actually, in James chapter 5, it's the prayer of the elder. It's the faith of the elder uh, that is to uh, be the means by which somebody gets healed. And so maybe that somebody is not getting healed because the faith of the elder is lacking. Or maybe it's because God desires to advance his kingdom through your sickness. This is more rare in the the Bible. But of course, you remember Paul, he had that thorn in his flesh. He asked three times for it to be removed, and it wasn't. And uh, God was saying, my... um, my strength is made perfect in your weaknesses. And so after Paul realized this, he says, well, then I'll boast in my weakness. So God was using his uh, physical ailment, whatever that was, to advance his kingdom. So that could be another possible reason why somebody may not get healed. A third reason we said is it could be that the prayer uh, for healing is in conflict with one's allotted years of life. I mean, you could pray for me for the rest of your life, all you young people, and at some point I'm going to die. And so uh, Psalm chapter 90 says we're allotted in general 70 years uh, for life, 80 years if there's strength. And so maybe the prayer that you're praying for somebody, you're praying for them to get healed, but actually it's in conflict with their allotted amount uh, of years of life. A fourth reason we said is that uh, maybe they are not healed due to the natural effects of just living in a fallen world, where sickness and premature death, they happen regularly. It's one of the effects of living in a fallen world. And just by the fact that somebody may get sick or somebody may die early has nothing to do with their godliness. And we took a look at Hezekiah just briefly there in 2 Kings chapter 18. And then a final reason, which is the reason that I want to key in on this morning, a final reason why somebody may not get healed when they're prayed for is because their sickness is in some way related to sin in their life. This is not always the case, but sometimes sin and sickness have a relationship. And so that's what we're going to be exploring this morning. So again, we're going to be taking our cues from James chapter 5 as as we walk through. Again, though, as we're talking uh, about this physical healing, uh, we're not, as we're talking about the the relationship between uh, spiritual wellness and physical wellness, we understand from the context right off the bat in verse 14 that this is about physical sickness. Is anyone among you sick, James instructs? Then let him call for the elders of the church. So clearly the context of the passage, it starts off by addressing the physical problems that people may have in the Christian community. But there's a significant shift that occurs in the next verse. 
If anyone has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. If anyone has, if anyone has committed sins, they'll, they'll be forgiven him. The spiritual component is now introduced within the context of physical healing. And as far as I can tell, there's only two ways uh, to really uh, interpret this section. There's only um, really two ways to understand why the idea of sin has been introduced here within the context of physical healing. Number one is that a person's sins will be forgiven because there's a direct link between their sin and sickness. And therefore, to be cured physically, has, uh, um, they, in order for them to be cured physically, they actually have to be cured spiritually because there's a problem with sin in their life. So somehow sin is contributing to their sickness. In this option, though, in option number one, God forgives their sins without the condition of the person asking for it. The person isn't asking for forgiveness of sins, but God just does it. He does this because they can't be separated. It's as if God is saying, if I don't, heal, if I don't deal with this person's sin, I can't heal their sickness because the two of them are linked. And the underlying assumption, at least in some cases, is that God can't heal a physically sick person unless the sin connected with that that sickness is dealt with. And so a key question in this option is this. Would God forgive a person of their sins without them asking for it? That's the key to option one. Would God forgive somebody of their sins without them asking for it? And so people automatically, they go to Mark chapter 2. That's the big um, passage in Scripture where this occurs. You remember the story. The four men uh, really love their buddy. He's, he's lame. He's on this pallet. And they can't get through to Jesus in this house. It's so jammed full. Boy, when's the last time we heard that? A house is jammed full of people. We long to hear that again. Anyways, it's jammed full of people. And so these four buddies, they want to get this guy through to Jesus. And so they make a hole in the roof. Maybe it was thatch. We don't really know what the roof was like. But make a hole in the roof and they get him to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. The guy didn't ask for it. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Then he says, take up your pallet and walk. And he's doing this for a whole other reason to show that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So in this first interpretation, if somebody were to bank on it, it's when somebody is being prayed for their physical sickness, they actually will also be cured of their sin in their life because God has to deal with with both of them, but this happens without them asking for it. Now, is that possible? It's possible, according to Mark chapter 2. But Mark chapter 2 has a whole set of reasons why Jesus is doing that, and that's the only exception we find in the Scriptures. But if somebody were to subscribe to this option, it would look something like this. Somebody who's sick, they come and ask for prayer for their sickness. The elders then pray for the faith of the individual. Rather, they pray in faith for the individual. And then God responds by both forgiving the individual of their sin and physically healing them. He does both. But again, in this first option, the key is this. God does it without them doing anything, without them asking for it, without them dealing with it at all. Option number two, which is the one that I would subscribe to, a second interpretation as to why the sin has been introduced in the context of physical healing, similar to option one, in that the sins connected to the sickness needs to be forgiven, but in the second interpretation, the individual confesses their sin before the prayer takes place. In this interpretation, God deals with any connection of sin and sickness on condition that the person first confess their sin. Here's what the process would look like. The sick person comes and asks for prayer for, uh, asks for, prayer for their uh, physical ailment, whatever that may be. 
The elders then ask the individual if there's any unconfessed sin in their life that they may be aware of, something that might be, in fact, contributing to their sickness. Now, this may include that the elder gives them some potential contributors that they may see. Thirdly, then the person confesses their sin out loud. God forgives their sin. The elders then pray in faith for the individual, and God responds by physically healing them. Now, I personally, of course, subscribe to this this second interpretation, but more on that in a few minutes. But first of all, I want to make this connection. In verse 16, it starts out with the word, therefore. So right after it says, if they have committed any sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The word therefore is linking the one who is forgiven in verse 15 with the one who has confessed their sin in verse 16. The assumption is that God's forgiveness has been done in response, in response to the person confessing their sin. Although it's not stated in verse 15, the assumption is that it is the confession of one's sin that has occurred with the linking word therefore. This is why they confess their sin. So this is part of the healing process. Part of the healing process is a confession of sin. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us. The normal way that God forgives our sin is when we confess it. The condition of forgiveness from God is the person's confession of their sin. Now with this understanding, one assumes that the confession of sins has already taken place because sins aren't forgiven unless they are confessed first. Therefore, the words, if he has committed any sins, they'll be forgiven him in verse 15, assumes that the confession of sin has already taken place. That's why the word therefore is there in verse 16. It's tied to the confession of sin. Now, although the confession of sin is the normal means by which God responds with his forgiveness, there are times in Scripture that God heals without the mention, without the mention of the person's confession of sin. Take John chapter 5, for example. Uh, it's a lame man who's been, uh, he's been crippled for 38 years. He's uh, lying there lame by the pools of Bethesda. Uh, I had the opportunity to be uh, at that location when I was in Jerusalem. And uh, so what was the man's disposition? He ends up getting healed. So what was his disposition before he gets healed? Well, he's having a conversation with Jesus. He's having a conversation about his sickness. And uh, the man actually is complaining That's the last words he does before he gets healed. He says, look, I try to get to the healing waters when the waters are stirred, but somebody beats me to the pool and somebody else gets healed. So here's what's going on in that that section. The the notion was that if um, you're by this pool of Bethesda, and if the waters get stirred, if you're the first person and you get healed, that was the idea. That was the notion that people believed. And so you can imagine this lame guy, how's he going to get into the pool? So, yeah, he can see the waters being stirred, but I can't get in there because nobody helps me. So somebody gets in there before me, and they end up getting healed. So it is assumed. So his last words to Jesus are words of complaint. Jesus' next words, arise, take your pallet, and walk. Doesn't really sound like a confession of sin, does it? And yet he still gets healed. Clearly no confession of sin, but he's still healed. Or take that story I referred to earlier in the book of Mark. The paralytic says nothing to Jesus before he's both forgiven of his sin and then healed of his affliction. There's no confession of sin, but yet he's, he's healed. Not to mention countless other healings Jesus did without there any mention of people being healed without um, their mention of, sorry, of, of a confession of sin. 
countless uh, occurrences in the New Testament. Therefore, although there are sicknesses that are connected with sin, the confession of sin is not necessary for the individual's healing, because we see exceptions to that all throughout the New Testament. But as we'll see shortly, the confession of sin is the normal procedure to be done in any prayer for healing within the Christian community. That's the normal procedure, and we're taking it here from James chapter 5. Verse 16 then says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The common after one's sins have been confessed is they are healed. But there's more going on here. The healing is linked to the person who has just confessed their sin. Again, this connection between sickness and sin and healing are all wrapped up here together. Now, apparently, rabbis used to believe that a person could not be healed of their sickness until their sins were forgiven. Uh, Rabbi Alexandria says this, No man gets up from his sickness until God has forgiven him of all his sins. And the disciples, it seems like they believe this too. You remember the man who was born blind in John chapter 9? They said, Oh, Jesus, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? So the, this notion of sin for sure being connected to his sickness. And of course, Jesus says, Neither. In John 9, then, there's clearly a link between sin and sickness. But back in the story of the healed lame man, Jesus does make a connection between sin and sickness in John chapter 5. So again, this is the story of the lame man. There's a connection there between sin and sickness. And I want to read it to you. Uh, If you turn there quickly enough, you can get there. But this is John chapter 5. So I already told you the story. The lame man is complaining. He's not getting into the, the waters quickly enough. Somebody else gets healed. And so he's complaining to Jesus. Jesus tells him, take up your pallet and walk. So now he's healed. This is now uh, verse 9. Immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on the day. Verse 10. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Key verse, next verse. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Jesus is making a direct connection between sin and sickness. We don't know specifically what that connection is, but but clearly Jesus is making it. Not sinning anymore will result in what? Nothing worse may befall you. So the question is, worse than what? Worse than what? A worse sickness that could result? Or is, it talk, is Jesus talking about worse than sickness? It's an eternity without God if he kept sinning after this. We don't know. We don't know what the worst condition is, if it's spiritual or a physical one, as either could fit the context. And regardless of the future condition of this man, Jesus again is making a clear connection between sin and sickness. So if we go back to James chapter 5 then, and it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This notion is that there's a connection now between sin and sickness and healing. Now this word for so that you may be healed, this word to be healed, 
is from the Greek word eomai, and it can be taken to mean spiritual healing or physical healing. Again, if you're taking notes, you can just jot this down. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15, uh, it's clearly used there for spiritual healing. Mark chapter 5 and verse 29, it's clearly used for physical healing. So it can mean either. It can mean physical or spiritual, or it can actually mean both. Um, Hebrews uh, chapter 12 and verses 11 to 13 says this, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight the paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be out of joint, but rather be healed. In the context here, he's talking both about uh, spiritual wellness and physical wellness. There can be a combination of the two. Or you take 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, often quoted, by his wounds or by his stripes we are healed. A, spiritual, a clear spiritual healing that comes from Jesus' physical wounds. Now, I know this is more of an intellectual type sermon, but keep tracking with me. With all the above in mind, there appears to be plenty of scripture supporting the notion that the confession of sin should be part uh, of, of prayer for somebody who is uh, physically sick. This, of course, is not necessary for the physical healing, as we've already seen, but as a rule, this is what we're taking from James chapter 5. Not, because, not just because there's strong evidence to support the notion of it here, but because other places in Scripture also makes that connection. We've already mentioned a few, but again, if you're just taking notes, in the Old Testament, pestilence is mentioned 48 times. 43 of those times, it's a punishment from God. He gives them pestilence because of the sin that's going on in their life. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 25 uh, is one of those places. God promises to send a deadly disease among them if they choose to disobey his commands. Again, clear connection between the two. Or we took communion last week. You'll remember we do this every week or every time we take communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it says uh, in the context there, for this reason, many of you are sick. So he tells them the procedure on how to take communion. But then at the end of it, he says, you need to uh, take stock and take evaluation and make sure that you're right before God. But then he says, for this reason, those who are taking communion inappropriately, he says, for this reason, many of you are sick. This is again, 1 Corinthians 11. It's a disciplinary action done by God within the context of a physical one. So according to this passage, at that time, this is 1 Corinthians 12, at the time Paul was writing it, many of the Corinthian Christians were sick. They were sick because of the flippant way they were taking the Lord's Supper and communion. Some of them were getting drunk. Others were acting in prejudice right there in the church service. Again, why are they sick? Because of sin, a clear connection between the two. And there are present-day connections between sin and sickness as well. Take sexual sin, for example. In Uganda in the 1990s, there was a 20% reduction in AIDS. In Masaka, the decline went from 7,500 down to 3.2,000 over a 10-year period. Why? Because faith-based organizations came in and they're prom promoting the awareness of how AIDS spreads. There's a variety of ways, but the prominent way that it's being spread back then was sexually. And one of the significant correlations, again, between AIDS and what was happening during that time was a drop in sexual activity. That's the drop <clears throat> for several thousand people having AIDS because they now were informed. They now understood it. Again, a connection between sin and sickness. This is not to say 
that all cases of AIDS have resulted from sexual immorality. Of course, I'm not saying that. But plenty of them can be. Therefore, in many cases of AIDS, the sin of sexual immorality is linked to the AIDS sickness. Again, a connection between the two. This correlation of sin and sickness can be made more specifically to any sexually transmitted diseases. As a rule, you don't want any sexually transmitted disease, don't sleep around. Have one partner and you'll never get a sexually transmitted disease. Again, a connection between sin and sickness. The sin, sleeping around, the resulting sickness, sexually transmitted diseases. Now, the key to all that we've been talking about to this point is that sin may cause sickness. It may cause sickness. That option is out there. But to say that all sickness is linked to a person's sin is clearly spoken against in Scripture. Remember John chapter 9. Who sinned? This man or, this, or their parents? Neither, Jesus says. Now, I am clearly grateful for the worlds of medicine and psychology, and we actually have uh, two uh, who are helping us in this industry. Uh, we've got a doctor over here and a doctor over here, two different kinds of doctors. But I'm certainly grateful for the medical and the psychological uh, departments in our society. I think they've helped us greatly. And I believe they've helped greatly in the Christian community to understand the potential relationship actually between sin and sickness. Let me give you a few examples. If you went to a doctor and told him that you were having back pains and thought you might be getting an ulcer, he may ask you what's going on in your life in regards to stress and anxiety, connection between the two. And of course, Philippians 4.8 says this is how you get through that. Don't be anxious for anything, but you bring all your requests before God, and the peace that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts. In 2004, the World Health Organization produced an article called Global Strategy on Diet, Physical Activity, and Health. Here's a quote from that article. Obesity and overweight pose a major risk for serious diet-related chronic diseases, including type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, stroke, and certain forms of cancer. Obesity commonly results from gluttony, a patterned life connected to the sin of overeating. And in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, gluttony is clearly in a category of sin. So gluttony then would be the sin. The potential sickness stemming from that could be diabetes, cardiovascular disease, etc., etc. So how to deal with the physical sickness of diabetes, etc., is really the question. Well, this may mean asking the person who you're praying for if they are gluttonous in their eating. If they have, they confess their sin, then you'd pray for them. Again, this is not to say that all sickness can be directly related to, pers- to, a, to a person's sickness. Sorry, to sin. But scripture clearly shows that there can be a correlation between the two. And the fields of medicine and psychology would certainly support this notion. Therefore, A common question that I ask people when they come for healing prayer is this. Are you aware of any sin in your life that you've not confessed that may be contributing to this sickness? And maybe after that, there's a short time. Like in Psalm chapter uh, 139, uh, where David is honest and open before God, and he says, search me, O God, see if there's any uh, way in me that's not right, and lead me in your way. Basically, he's saying, I'm open, God, to the, the possibility that there might be something contributing in my life to my overall health, and would you, would you help me understand that? Search me, O oh God, see if there's any wicked way in me. So maybe the second, first step is saying, are you aware of this? Are you aware of any sin that may be contributing to your sickness? Maybe not. Then say, well, let's take a few minutes, and let's just ask God to search us, to search you and see if there's any unconfessed sin in your life.
This would then be in line with James chapter 5, as there's a connection between a person's sickness and sin in their life. To be healed without dealing with the connecting sin would only result in the sickness's reoccurrence. So you, you can deal with the person's physical problem and they can be healed, but if you don't take care of the connecting sin, this is only going to result in the sickness coming back again. This is why both need to be dealt with in the context for, for healing. Somebody comes to be prayed for, it, the sin also, the, or the potential of sin also needs to be dealt with. Okay, I think um, that's enough for us to have a conversation about. And, um, and you can, of course, uh, have any questions that were a part of two weeks ago or this, or this week, and we've got one more coming up. And the one that's coming up is, what about effective prayer? Because then it says effective prayer can accomplish much. We'll talk, that's part three for next week. So I want to give a few uh, key lessons. I've got three of them. And um, hopefully this will help us to, to summarize some of the things we've been talking about and maybe enter into conversation then. First of all, Although all sickness is not connected to a person's sin, Scripture does make this connection in some cases. Although all sickness is not connected to a person's sin, Scripture does make this connection in some cases. John chapter 5, verse 14, that's the layman. Do nothing, uh, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may befall you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 28 to 32, this is where they're taking communion wrong. It's because there's prejudice right in the church service. And many of them are sick as a result. So not all sicknesses say, ah, I know why you're sick, there's sin in your life. Well, no, that's not the case. That may be the case, and that's why I think James provides the opportunity to express that sin and that possibility so that category can be dealt with before they are prayed for. Secondly, in order to deal with a sickness that has resulted from a person's sin, one ought to confess that sin first. This is why this confession of sin is done here before the prayer of healing. So in order for that sickness to be dealt with, the person needs to confess that sin. Again, this is James' uh, procedure. This is the procedure of James and the only procedure we have in the New Testament for dealing with physical healing. And then finally, although confession of sin is not necessary for God to heal an individual, like John chapter 5, the practice of confessing your sin prior to prayer for physical healing should be normal in the Christian community. This is the way it should be done. There are so many factions or, that are out there that have so many different ways of understanding physical healing. And we, it's so easy for us to get confused uh, by all of this. I think James helps to really summarize the whole thing and put it into a sequence to help us understand really what's going on. And again, I think uh, for this, for the purposes of this sermon, there can be a link between sin and sickness. And so as James rightly instructs us, let's make sure that gets taken care of. All right, I've said enough. And uh, I, I found that this morning my, my words weren't flowing normally. That I was getting, yes. Yeah, I got my S's were all over the map today. And uh, anyway, so hopefully you understood what I was saying.